Uh, good morning, Gateway. If you're visiting with us today, thanks for being our guest. I'm Ed, and this is Sutta. Sutta, welcome. We're going to be looking this morning at a passage of Scripture that's really important to us here at Gateway. We actually went over this passage of Scripture, or part of it, not long ago, but we're going to look at it again today with a slightly different lens. So we're reading from Ephesians 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 16. Sorry about that, Sutta. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. It'll be on the screen, but I'd love for you to look at this if you have a Bible, because we'll be kind of picking it apart and opening it up in a little bit. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, and Ephesians is one of those little books at the back of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John keep going north. If you get to Revelation, Hebrews, you've gone too far, go south. But it'll be on the screen for you. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. Sorry you just sat down and you're going to be standing for a minute. So Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. So if you would. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you. I've said this before about this passage, but I want you to notice the context. So he's writing this passage from prison. So we don't have to imagine, we know for certain, that his attention is riveted on those things that are most important to him. And he's going to go here through, over the next several chapters, through a, a laundry list of, of what it means to kind of be somebody who's struggling to know God, who's struggling to figure out how to live like Jesus. But I want us to notice particularly where he begins, where his attention is first riveted. Okay, go ahead, Sita. I'm not going to interrupt again, probably. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he descended on high, he, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Father, we pray that uh, you would speak to us today. We make ourselves available to you, and we're convinced that none of us are here by accident. Lord, as much as we're able, we avail our hearts and our minds to you for your voice, your spirit, to literally speak to us. 
instruct, guide. I pray in particular, Father, that you would move us toward connection. Move us toward community with one another. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Suda, and you may be seated. Okay, we are in week three of a series of conversations in which we're talking about resilience, stick-to-itiveness, perseverance, hanging in when things are tough and when things are well, still pointing forward, growing and moving in such a way that I'm continuing to become a better and better version of myself. So let's survey real quickly. Week one, and I'm going to give you two images to go with the first two weeks. Week one, we said resilient people exercise spiritual discipline. You know what a rubber band is. It's made out of rubber products, and you also know how a rubber band operates, and you have used a rubber band before. And if you've used a rubber band, if you've overused a rubber band, then you know what happens. Even though a rubber band is elastic and you can stretch it and it snaps back into place, eventually a rubber band will grow weary and lose its elasticity. And if you stretch it enough, it will snap or break. Sometimes it's just in an extended position. If you keep it in the wrong conditions for too long a time, if you, if you have it in cold weather for too long a time, it, a rubber band will eventually snap and break. You and I are like rubber bands. So we are made to be resilient, to snap back into place, but you have been in situations where you have been tried so many times. You've been around the block already in this conflict exactly like this before, and I think I'm just going to snap, and sometimes we do. We lose our resilience. Well, week one we said our discipline, our spiritual exercise of of trying to make ourselves available to God. Our discipline creates the space within which God can provide us with a robust resupply of elasticity. Week two, we said resilient people run free of the weight of the past. Resilient people run free of the weight of the past. So for the image here, I want you to imagine dancing, and in particular, dancing with a sore foot, and let's say an infected toe. I am a terrible dancer, so it is inevitable if Diane and I dance, my wife is Diane, and if Diane and I dance for a long enough period of time, I'm going to step on her toe. So here's the reaction when I step on Diane's toe. Honey, get off of my feet. Okay, Diane. But I want you to imagine now that Diane and I are dancing and she has an infected toe. So if I step on her infected toe, the, the reaction is severely more dramatic than that, isn't it? It's more like, ow, get off of my toe. And if I step on her infected toe yet again, there's a price to be paid. Some of us carry wounds from our past. You'll never amount to anything that become for us like an infected toe. And when someone else steps on that affected toe, kaboom! We respond appropriately to an infected toe hurt. But the person who stepped on our toe feels like this reaction is all out of proportion, and in fact it is, if your toe had not been infected. The work we do releasing our burdens, 
The work we do cleaning up our past allows for God's healing over time so that our sore spots become more and more manageable, so that it's, it's easier and easier for us to dance together without stepping on one another's infected toes. Today, we're going to add our third to the list of features, aspects that help us be resilient people. And today, we're going to say, resilient people run with the right company. Resilient people have the right kind of posse. Resilient people are in a company of others, and it's the right kind of company. Resilient people don't run alone, because people who run alone do not exhibit resilience. The rubber band eventually wears out. Now, we're going to do something today that we haven't done in a while at Gateway. If I hear any groans, I'm going to punish you. Just kidding. Uh, we're going to groupletize. So those of you who have been at Those of you who have been at Gateway know what I mean. You're actually going to turn toward one another. You're literally going to turn your chairs toward one another into little small circles. Let's don't completely destroy the rows, but I want you to partially destroy the rows. I'm going to make this easy on you. You're not going to have to answer anything horrible and embarrassing. I know that some of you hate this kind of thing. You're introverted. Others of you are like, giddy up, let's go. I get to meet somebody. I especially hope that you're with people that you don't know that well. You're going to begin by introducing yourselves, and these are the rules. Number one, your little circle has to be at least four people. Number two, your little circle cannot be more than seven people. And number three, you're going to have to introduce yourself. So I wish you would now turn toward one another and group up, and I'm going to give you some questions to answer. So turn around and group up. No more than seven. I want you to make note of where your chair is. You're going to have to go back to it. Okay, introduce yourselves to one another. All right, you got everyone's name now. Question number one, who was your first best friend? And you've got 30 seconds, but let's hear a little bit about it. Let me answer that for you. My first best friend was Kaufman. We met when I was in the first grade, and we went through elementary school together. His father was the principal of our elementary school, so Kaufman and I were constantly in trouble. And when we were in trouble, it was doubly bad. Kaufman was my first best friend. Who was your first best friend? Tell your circle. Okay, second question. And this kind of exercise is always very interesting, isn't it? You get a circle of six pretty shy people, they're done in 15 seconds. You get four talkers together, I say you're done and only the first person has answered the question. Second question, what is the best team you've ever been on? It might be a sports team from high school. It might be a work team. It might be a team that you're on right now. It could be a team of parents, a PTA group. What's the best team? And you define best how you want to. What's the best team you've ever been on? Go. All right, let me have your attention again. Listen, those of you who are married, you missed a golden opportunity if you didn't say, why my marriage after all? And if somebody said that, I want the rest of the group to look at them right now and mouth the words, brown noser. Okay, so which of these feels more like support to you? Someone happily helps you with a home improvement project. Someone gives you an extraordinary personal and meaningful gift. Someone encourages you through a difficult trial. Which one of those feels more like support to you? 
Be quick on this one. Go. All right. Let's turn our chairs to their original upright position, if you would. And let's go ahead and not tell the fire marshal we did this. Try to get your seats back in an orderly row if you can. Okay, so resilient people run with the right company. This shouldn't surprise us really. We were made for connection. We were made for community. Isolation is simply not good for us. We know this from personal experience that our sense of well-being goes down while our sense of depression goes up when we feel chronically lonely. Plus, loneliness is not good for us physically. There are studies too numerous to cite that have connected loneliness to elevated instances of cancer, heart disease, accidents, suicide, and diabetes. I want to cite just one. According to a 20-year long-term study conducted by the University of Chicago, loneliness increased the likelihood of premature death by 24%. The head researcher on this long-term study said this. I thought this was fascinating. I want to be very clear. People aren't dying of loneliness, but they are dying of cardiovascular disease, cancer, accidents, suicide, and diabetes. Based on your genetic and your environmental history, loneliness can make these conditions strike earlier than they otherwise would have, end quote. When we combine this with what we know to be true of the age we live in, this is a problem for us, right? A recent Huffington Post article started with this zinger. Listen, quote, our time has been called the age of loneliness. It's estimated today that one in five Americans, one in five, suffer from persistent loneliness. That's amazing. But we've known about that loneliness was not good for us since the beginning. Genesis 1 and 2, some of you know that part of the story, but Genesis 1 and 2 gives us a big picture recounting of God launching everything, creation. And he, he has this caveat of creative activity, and at the end of it, they're called days in Genesis 1, and at the end of each creative activity, God stands back and surveys, and he said, it's good. And at the end of day six, when he had done everything and capped it off with creating human beings, he said, that's very good. Then we learn in chapter two, in all of creation, billions of galaxies, countless light years of expansive space, in all of creation, there's one thing that's not good, man's aloneness. It's not good for us to be alone. We need connection with others. So no surprise, our resilience, our bounce backedness depends on us connecting to the right company of others. So, what kind of company are we looking for? And this is going to be the substance of our conversation today. What kind of company are we looking for? And when we look at the passage that Suda read for us this morning through the lens of the company that we're looking for, we end up with four very important guiding principles. And so let's unpack those. Here's what we're looking for. Here's the kind of company that we're looking for. And don't sit this morning and think, you know, I don't really need a posse because I'm going to come to this at the end. But you do. You have one. It just might not be the right one. It might be a mom's group, desperate moms. The, the advertisement is desperate moms who are pulling their hair out. Or it might be dads whose sons play baseball. You have a posse. It might be the work group at work, but it might not be the right one. It might not be a posse that's building resilience into your life, that's giving you stick to So what are we looking for? Four things. Number one, 
The right company provides a place of unity. The right company provides a place of unity. The company we need is not casual. It's not a fan club. It's a place of unity. There's something. And obviously, this unity takes effort. Listen to verses 2 and 3 of what Soda read for us. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. In fact, this kind of unity requires, it's a prerequisite, that we exhibit the character of Christ. We have to be loving and patient. We have to bear with one another in love. Nothing short of our best effort will allow us to develop the right kind of community, and the right company will be a place that is working on unity. So exactly what kind of unity are we looking for? So now we're still under the title of a place of unity. But we're going to spend a little more time on this one than we are on the other three. We're going to talk about what kind of unity we're looking for. So, four things about the kind of unity we're looking for. Number one, it's a functional unity. There is one body, Paul says. Listen to this section right after verses 2 and 3. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. There is one body. In other words... We work together. We function as a single organism. Now, look, this is the most basic level of unity, and it's true of any functioning team or company. Any kind of organization should exhibit functional unity. So perhaps, for our purposes, this goes without saying, except that Paul understands even this most basic understanding of unity. He understands it at a a deeper level. Did you notice the image he uses? He says there's one body. We're not connected to one another like gears in a machine, but like parts of a body. Ours is a living functionality, a living functional unity. Secondly, our unity is of the Spirit. It's a spiritual unity. This means it comes from the Spirit of God, and it comes to us as a gift. Make every effort to keep. We don't have to build it, but we have to keep it, to keep the unity of the Spirit Paul reminds us, this unity doesn't depend on what we have in common. It doesn't grow out of our inclinations or our natural attractions. That's the way friendship happened when we were eight. But you live a very busy suburban life. It doesn't happen like that anymore. Our unity comes out of the Spirit, and we work to keep it. It comes from God's Spirit, and it comes to us as a gift. All right, by implication, this also means that there is one deep internal motivator and change agent that's working in all of us. That's why there are times when you tell me, this happened to me twice this week, when you tell me about some deep rearrangement that's happening in your life, and I say to myself, yep, I get that, because that's happened to me before too. God has worked in my life in exactly that way, because we have a spiritual unity. I've made that same mistake. Yep, I know that. Third, Our unity is a purposeful unity. We have one hope, Paul tells us, one focus, one motivation, one direction toward which we were called. Okay, back up. Again, I'm describing the kind of company that you and I need to run with if we're going to be growing in resilience. And that company is a place that's working on the right kind of unity. So what's the right kind of unity? Again, it's functional unity, it's spiritual unity, and it's purposeful unity. And finally, it's doctrinal unity. We believe something. 
One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all, through all, and in all. There is a belief at the core of the right kind of unity, a belief that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I know that's a little beyond where some of you are at, but hang in there, because that belief, I'm convinced, that belief is at the core of the right kind of unity. Now, this doesn't mean we agree on everything. But there is a core way of understanding the world. There's a core narrative that we not only agree on, we've given our lives to it. That's the kind of unity that supports resilience. All right, let's back up a minute. Let's revisit how we began these resilience conversations. At the beginning of week one of this series, here's what we said, and I'm going to take this straight out of the the first conversation. We said this, we often say kids are resilient, but what about adults? In many ways, we seem to get more fragile as we get older, less able to bounce back. Is it possible to live your whole life with resilience? To live with flexibility and grace in the face of change and difficulty? To bend but never break in the face of adversity? To finish what we started and to finish strong? To live with real purpose despite the circumstances? Is it possible that our best days are ahead of us no matter where we are in life? Okay, that's how we introduce the whole series. And then we jump right into it. We acknowledged together the bad news. We said this. Now, it's absolutely true that we are deteriorating physically. You laughed on the first Sunday when I said that. Still, there's good news, we said. We are nowhere near our peak spiritually. For almost every one of us, the best years of our lives are yet to come. Wisdom is still growing within us, enabling enhanced decision-making and better advice for others. The greatest potential for good, sacrificial, impactful good, is still ahead of us. The greatest potential for advancing God's cause and proclaiming God's love in word and deed is still in front of us. Increased capacity to love, increased understanding of an experience of joy and peace, increased patience and kindness, enlarged hearts of goodness and faithfulness are still in front of us if we learn to live resilient lives. Pause for dramatic effect, as we did on week one. That's what's at stake for us. Nothing less than being our best selves. And if we're going to do that, we've got to run with a company of others who are first pursuing the right kind of unity. Now let's dive back in. Plus, secondly, we've got to connect ourselves to a group that is working like a symphony. That's my image, not Paul's. We've got to connect ourselves to a group that's working like a symphony. The right company performs like a symphony. This is kind of a restatement of what I said a minute ago, the idea of functional unity. Paul teases that out a little bit more, but he goes further. Let me explain what I mean, but first of all, listen to verses 11 through 13 and how it teases this out. He says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Every time I read this section of Scripture, I think of Dr. Richard Lovelace. Dr. Lovelace was uh, one of my dissertation advisors years ago, and Dr. Lovelace would begin every class with having us listen to a symphony. He was a huge Mahler fan. I'm not really, sorry to some of you, but I'm not not really much of a classical music fan, and I'm really not a Mahler fan. I don't even understand half of what he does sometimes, but Dr. Lovelace was profoundly fascinating. He's a brilliant man, 
a brilliant church historian. His avocation was musicology. And for Dr. Lovelace, he knew more about music and the study of music than I know about the things that are my lead foot. So every day in our class, Dr. Lovelace would put on a piece of Mahler music, and he would stand in front of us in a way that initially in class seemed awkwardly weird, and it got more and more powerful and meaningful to me. He would stand up and he would say, okay, right now, ladies and gentlemen, right now he's going to bring in the string. And he just had way more passion and energy than I could imagine someone having about a piece of classical music. But as we were going through each piece, he would tell us why this was building and what he's doing right here with the horns. And now he's going to bring... And we were all a little bit weirded out, and he would end each time with prayer. Last day of our class together, this was a two-week exercise. The last day of our class together, he played a particularly long Mahler piece, and he was really moving across the whole front of the classroom. He would point at some of us as if we were the flutes, and then he, he would point at another section of us as if we were the strings, and he would eliminate all but the violins, and then one violin, and then you bring us all back in slowly, and at the end of it, the piece ends. And Dr. Lovelace said something I'll never forget. Ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly how the body of Christ works. What Paul says here is that he's given each one of us grace, that's Paul's word. He's given us personality, and he's given us abilities, and he's given us skill, and then he moves in and takes up resonance in us, and he occupies those abilities with supernatural power, and then there are other abilities that begin to inhabit us because he's in us. And those have been given to us and empowered in us because he intends us to use those to play our part at exactly the right moment. Have you seen that Geico commercial with the guy who does the triangle solo? I don't know if you've seen it, but you need to look for that on television. It's a, a symphony is playing, and all of a sudden the guy in the back who's playing the triangle comes out front of the stage and begins to bang, and the whole symphony goes quiet. There's none of that. In the body of Christ, we each play our part off of the same piece of music and it rises and it falls depending on what's going on around us because the right company performs like a symphony. We've been given grace. These are to be employed in the service of company so that everyone is built up and becomes mature. That's how this works. That's the kind of company you're looking for that will build resilience into your life. We play together, we work together, we live together in concert with one another, moving through the same piece of music, each playing our part at just the right time, and we produce something of profound elegance and beauty that lifts all of us to heights greater than we could possibly achieve by ourselves. If we're going to be resilient, we need to be part of a symphony. Third, the company we're looking for is a place of stability. Listen to verse 14. Then... We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. The right company is a place of stability, especially emotional and intellectual stability. Now, Paul's original audience, the church in Ephesus, there were a group of young Christians who were confronted with some wacky teaching and crazy ideas. So in that kind of an atmosphere, how do you hold on to your footing? You stay connected to the right company. Perhaps the easiest way to understand the importance of this in our lives is to think about a time of trial in your life. Think of losing your job 
Or think of getting a really bad report from the doctor. Or think of an ongoing, intractable conflict with your spouse. What are you going to do? How will you feel? Doubt and fear creep in. You're unsettled. You're in danger of losing your footing. You need the right company in order to manage, in order to bounce back. The right company is a place of stability. Let's give a negative example. If you're grieving because your marriage is falling apart, you don't need to become a part of a study group that advertises itself as join us if you hate your husband group. That's the wrong company. The right company is a place of stability. Years ago, before we moved into Northern Virginia, my wife Diane and I lived in Boston, and we pastored a church in the inner city there, and we had a, a man become part of our church. We'll call him Larry. He had grown up in a really bad section of Chicago and had spent part of his time as a drug dealer and had a child with a woman and married a woman who was a former prostitute. And Larry was exceedingly good, exceedingly good at manipulation and untruth and extracting every ounce of help that he could out of anybody around him who was willing to enable his personality and his habits. And so in walks Barney Fife, who's going to pastor the church, and, you know, Larry just sucked us dry. And we ended up in so many different circumstances. We gave our car one time to Larry because there was some little something, I don't remember what it was, but some little something wrong with it. Larry says, I know a guy. Okay, Larry, only Barney Fife does this. Okay, Larry, here are the keys, shucks. Larry drives away with our car. The next time we saw it, it's on the side of the road. I'm not kidding. It doesn't have wheels, and the whole dashboard has been stripped. And Larry's explanation is, gosh, I don't know how that happened. So there was incident after incident until eventually, you know, Diane and I had grown up enough, and I was able to communicate with Larry. Pretty much, we're done with that. You know, no more of that. Uh, you got to grow up and be a man We're not going to do this anymore. And there was a fissure in my relationship with Larry. The relationship ended. He ended the relationship, essentially walking out on us. The next we heard from Larry, he was in prison. He spent a number of years in prison, and after two or three years, I don't remember, it might have even been four years in prison, uh, I got a letter one day from Larry. I saved it for a long time, and then in the move to Northern Virginia, or one of our moves, I lost it. You don't ever get this letter, but I did. Got a letter from Larry, and Larry said, Ed, you were right about everything. My life has fallen apart, and it amounts to nothing. And y'all are still there, still faithful, still moving forward. The right company is a place of stability that stays, that continues, that moves forward. Finally, the right company is a place of growth. The right company is not a place where you show up and sit. People among the right company, the kind of company we need, are people who are growing. Their lives are changing. Listen to verses 15 and 16. Instead, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. That's Christ. 
From him, the whole body, joined together and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The right company is a place of unity. It's a symphony. It's a place of stability. And it's a place where people are growing. Okay, listen. I am very excited about what God is doing here at Gateway. And I'm very excited that many of you have decided to peek in over the last few weeks and be our guests. I'm even more excited that some of you think this is a place where you might be able to jump in and invest. But I want to issue a challenge to those of you who are our guests. And this is also a challenge for those of you who have been tracking with Gateway for a while. This is not the right company yet. Not if you take all of us together. 300 people in a room like this, that's not the right company. This is just a crowd. Just because we get together on Sunday morning and sing some songs, that doesn't make us the right company. If we're going to be a place that builds one another's resilience, if we're going to be a place that encourages the growth of one another's best selves, we've got some work to do. First of all, we've got to be a place of unity. We've got to work at it. Functional unity, spiritual unity, purposeful unity, and doctrinal unity. Secondly, we've got to get on the same piece of sheet music and play our part. We've got to take our instrument and play. You're not part of the audience, you're in the symphony. And you need to be in the place where you not only listen, but you play. Thirdly, we've got to be a place of stability. This stability comes partly as a byproduct of us being the symphony, the symphony that we're supposed to be, but it also has to be part of what we're thinking about, looking for, and investing in. And finally, we've got to be a place of growth. This has to become real. We have to invest in it. The right company doesn't just happen by accident. Friendships don't happen because of proximity anymore like they did when we were nine. We have to make choices. And for any church to become this kind of company, there has to be some structure that sponsors it. And now for the advertisement. Small groups are that structure for us at Gateway. That's how we support and sponsor and live out this kind of company. That's how we build this company. That's how we build posses for one another. Let's make our groups great this fall. Don't show up and expect to receive. Show up to invest and show up. Play your part. Sign up if you haven't. Out in the lobby, there's a place you can sign up today. You can pick a group, what night you want, where you want it to be. Sign up for a group. You need this. I know you don't have time. You need it. You're too busy not to be invested in this way. Now, someone here is thinking, and I'm going to come back to where I started. Some of, someone here is thinking, you know, I'm not into small groups. I don't want to sit around and talk about myself or stuff. I actually want to challenge that. For almost all of us, that's just not true. As I said, you have a small group. It may be the project at work. It, it, it may be the baseball team parents. It may be your family. You have a small group. Is it the right company? Because resilient people run with the right company. Sometimes our company is not a close-knit company. Sometimes our company is not particularly supportive. Sometimes our company has no real belief or mission. Sometimes the unity is ad hoc. It's whatever's going on right now. 
but not the, the right kind of unity. In other words, sometimes we don't have the right company, but we have a company. The thing is, resilient people run with the right company. So my challenge to all of us, let's invest and make the right companies with and for one another this fall. Let's do it. Now, if you're a guest, you have our full and utter and absolute permission to look in, check out Window Shop. But as soon as you sense that God might be stirring you in this direction, this is the direction he's stirring. Step in, play your instrument, find your group, sign up, and make it a great group. Make it a real group. Make it a fun group, and make it a group that's challenging because, look, the kind of company we're looking for is a company where people are growing so make it an environment where you and the people around you are growing. Let's do it. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts and wrap up, seal, protect anything that you might have spoken to us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would move us to step into the right company. And those of us who are in, Lord, we thank you for the reminder that this is partly why we've been able to hang in there. This is partly why we've been able to continue to, to grow into our best selves. We thank you for your investment in us this way. Lord, move us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me close with this. Some of you heard this three or four times from me, but worth hearing again. I went through a period of time in my early 20s when faith didn't make sense to me for a little while, and I stepped away. Uh, when I came back to faith, I got in touch with someone who had been a friend of mine. He'd been a fraternity brother in college, and he was one of the few Christians that I knew. He's actually part of our church today, one of our elders. His name's Rob Showers, and I called Rob up, and I said, Rob, I'm looking for some way to encourage my faith. And he said, wow, I think he was a little surprised. He said, I am starting a Bible study right now with two other guys. You want to be part of it? Sure. So we started meeting one morning a week for a Bible study. Really, what we did is, we, you know, remember, we're guys in our 20s. We met one morning a week to argue about stuff. But the arguments would grow out of the scriptures. And somebody would say, well, you know, I think it's the right thing is this because it says this in the Bible. And somebody else would say, no, it doesn't. Well, yes, it does. No, it doesn't. Well, find it. So we would have to spend the next week finding it or not finding it to our surprise. It was an incredibly enriching experience to me. I fell in love with the Bible for the first time in my life and digging into it. There's also a group of guys that were really, really, really honest with one another about everything. You really should not be doing that. Stop it. I'm going to follow you, and if you do that again, I'm going to hit you. One morning a week turned into two mornings a week. Two mornings a week turned into three mornings a week. Before the semester was over, I was probably spending more time on that Bible study than I was on any of my classes. Diane and I started dating not long after that, and she and I got involved in a, a church in North Carolina. Diane's from North Carolina. I was living in North Carolina at the time. It was a large church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It was a great church, great pastors, great communicator. And Diane and I uh, worked with the teenagers, and I sang in the choir. It was one of those churches that had a big choir. 
And we were very involved. We knew people. We'd go out to lunch occasionally with people in the church. And one day I was thinking about this, and something profound occurred to me, and it might be an overstatement, but not really, that changed my life. I realized, wow, my church is Rob and Tim and Stacy, and it's the best church I've ever been to. So I felt called into ministry. I went to seminary and spent years learning stupid languages that nobody even speaks anymore because I wanted to figure out how you do that for a multiplying group of people. Because that, that, man, there's magic in that. There's resilience in that. There's week by week becoming my best self in that. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to figure out how to do that in a multiplying network of relationships. A symphony where everybody's playing their part. We're going to sing this chorus one time through. You guys stand with us. And sing your praise will ever be. Ever be 